This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You may have a stereotype image in your head of the technology startup founder. And the chances are it's somebody based in East London with a hipster beard potentially living on a houseboat or something trendy like that. But as we've seen on Jimmy's Jobs before, startup founders come in all shapes and sizes. We've had Anne Bowden on, who founded a billion-dollar bank, Starling, in her 50s. And that's what today's guest is all about as well. Lindsay Simpson is running a company called 55 Redefined, and it's all about how we find purpose later in life. She was introduced to us after James Adams got in touch following our call out following International Women's Day for more interesting and diverse guests. This show is made possible by the fantastic support of our various partners and I wanted to thank the Octopus Group. The Octopus Group is a collection of eight entrepreneurially minded businesses across financial services and energy, all founded on the one simple belief that people and the planet deserve better. They are intent on building a better tomorrow for future generations and are a certified B Corp, demonstrating they care as much about the impact of their investments as the returns they generate. I am proud that Octopus have backed this show since the second series, and they are the reason why we are now able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson, or the CEO of their investments arm, Ruth Hancock. If you want to see how you could partner with us, go to our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co. Lindsay, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thank you, Jimmy. Delighted to be here. So this is perhaps a bit of a simple one, really, and some an obvious one to start with, but the name 55 Redefined, where did that come from? And tell us the story of how you came up with it. Well, we've actually gone through three names in 18 months, so I can't say that it's um, it's definitely an art rather than a science. Um, so um, where we started life was actually with over60sonly.com, um, and I spent a lot of time and energy buying 060.com in every domain around the world um, until we then started doing focus groups, and we were told that 60 was just too late for an intervention and we needed to bring it down to 55 because 55 was when people were getting their pensions freedoms. It's when they were retraining. It was a peak age for divorce. So the name 55 Redefined came about from us saying, you know, what's our purpose? Well, it's to redefine life after 55. So that is still our group company name. Um, but in March this year, we launched three consumer and customer brands, which are now Life Redefined, Jobs Redefined and Work Redefined. So you'll see that we've lost the number out of those customer-facing brands um, and 55 Redefined kind of merges back into just the parent company. And that's because, again, feedback to 18 months later is we don't want to be badged by a number. 
it's about a mindset and this might be relevant content to me whether I'm 49 or 69 and I don't want to be categorized just by age so it is definitely an evolving piece but the word redefined is what we're all about so redefining later life and um, redefining that this should be actually be the best phase of your life actually rather than the slippery slope downhill that everybody talks to you about aging and, and really um, making this just a really positive, aspirational and exciting place for this brand new generation that are living longer, healthier and wealthier lives than any previous generation before them. And talk to us about that focus group, because that's quite an interesting way of doing research. It's quite a political party way. I've, I've sat in many focus groups where we've quizzed people about what they what they think. Talk to us about the process that you undertook for that. Yeah, well, I, I've you know, this isn't my first business, so I'm, I'm not in my target demographic. I'm 44, um, but I'm trying to solve it before I get into my target demographic. <laughs> um, but um, I've, I've launched, you know, eight businesses before this. And the, the biggest lesson I've taken from all of them, whether they be in the recruitment industry or whether they're bars and restaurants, is don't give the customer what you think the customer wants. Give the customer what they actually ask for. Um, and so um, as a digital business that was set up during the pandemic, it was simply that we originally started out by reaching out to extended friends and family in the target demographic and understanding what their views were. As we then started to gather early members, we asked for volunteers that would be prepared to give us their opinion and a join, you know, one hour calls to look at topics or give us feedback on our website. And then obviously you've got then the survey tools that we kind of, you know, pulse survey people's opinions. Um, as a CEO, the one thing I also do is write to five new customers every single week, just from me, just from my personal email going, why did you join? What do you like? What do you not like? What do you think we should change? How did you hear about us? And just getting this constant feedback loop has really helped us refine our, our brand, our proposition, um, our look and feel, and, and, and hopefully get as close to the point of us really solving some of the problems for this generation. That's very interesting, the way that you go about and take that personal touch with uh, with people. Is that something that you've picked up over your eight businesses that you've found before then? Because you've got a very diverse kind of entrepreneurial career. It, it absolutely is. The, the thread that hangs it together, um, you know, because people can't quite work out how you go from banking to recruitment to HR to, you know, hospitality to older workers and everything in between the thread is it's always about an underserved customer so the bit that gets me out of bed is where i see that there is a a customer that is disadvantaged in some way you know that could be at the luxury end of the market so i, I own a bar and restaurant business um that is you know cocktail bar champagne bar brasserie but in an affluent town that wasn't being served as an affluent town that had a succession of kind of family branded chains in there um, but it could also be, as I say, in this area where we're just trying to solve things that we see existing as major issues like ageism and trying to unpick it. But yeah, asking the customer has just been something that I now do as a result of habit, really, after 20 years of, of doing nothing else but. And so what was your, yeah, what was your first, what was your journey into the world of work? Um, well, I'm from a family of small business um, owners. So my first experience of work was probably when I was about five or six. My dad had a butcher shop. And so every weekend I would be sitting on the fridges in the butcher shop trying to upsell ham and sausages. Um, he, he then graduated to a post office. Um, and so from about the age of 10, I worked in the shop selling sweets, um, selling stationery, selling cards. 
um, and, and and just really understanding money and customer service. And then my first proper job, um, paid job with someone that wasn't a family member, was aged 15 when I joined the now defunct brand Saxone Shoes to go and sell shoes as the only company that would allow me to work as a 15-year-old back then. Amazing. And tell us about, because your team now is a dozen strong and you're going to be kind of increasing that by 50% over the coming months as well. Tell us about the first hires you made there and what you had taken from your previous entrepreneurial ventures into that hiring process now. Yeah, of course. Well, the very first hire was a really easy one for me um, because it's my it's my weakness um, and so it was actually bringing in a CTO so chief technology officer so I'm a generalist entrepreneur I can lean my way into sales into finance into marketing into HR but the area that I do not have domain expertise to lean in is in technology I'm a great user and I love it and I've built a technology company um, but I'm certainly not a practitioner so um, Richard Cordell um, joined us um, as our CTO literally in month one um, of funding when it was just me and a PowerPoint presentation. Um, and then his team, you know, were kind of the first ones in to be able to do some of the programming and developing. And then over the course of the next kind of 12 months from then was kind of extricating things that were within my comfort zone, like marketing and sales, but actually bringing in, you know, proper people to do that as their day job so that I could then focus on growing the business as the CEO. And how do you persuade somebody to go about taking that jump? Because it's a huge, it's a huge thing to do, right? Come in at, at the ground level and and build something from scratch. You're quite right. It is, and you know, I thank everybody that's that's kind of come into both this venture and previous ones because they take a huge leap of faith to do so. Um, partly, it's alignment with the vision. So, do they? get the problem that you know I'm trying to solve or the business is trying to solve in society and I think it helps that we are an impact business that's challenging and solving the issues associated with ageism um it's it's also then the fact that you kind of got no money to pay anyone so in those early days when you're still fundraising and hiring at the same time it's it's in you know being really transparent with people so not actually selling them the crown jewels and saying you're going to have this amazing salary in this but say actually I really want and need you I can only pay you this now, but I promise at this moment in time, once I'm through this bit of fundraising, it will move to X, Y, Z. So it's kind of giving people a bit of a pathway as to what the future is going to look like over the next 12 or 18 months, you know, but not pretending, you know, so you don't then disappoint somebody when something doesn't materialise, you know, down the road. Um, and what jobs are you going to be hiring for as you kind of go on this growth spurt over the next few months? The majority sit within our marketing function. Um, so of the six hires that we're bringing in, three of them are in marketing. So, you know, really working out our content um, a little bit further and actually having, you know, kind of journalist capability within the business. As a digital business, you know, uh, upskilling our team around bringing in-house things that we've been outsourcing. So at the moment, we lean quite heavily on agencies for our SEO, for PPC, for campaigns. And so, you know, we're wanting to bring some of that activity in-house. And so, and then the other areas are, you know, just bolstering the sales team as they're now nearing capacity um, and also finance because um, we've got a CFO. And then we have a bookkeeper and nothing in the middle. And I think if we don't bring in a finance manager soon, my CFO is quite likely to shoot me. Um, and uh, as he's trying to be strategic and then in the weeds all, you know, every hour. 
Um, and so that is one of those critical buyers as well that we need to do quite quickly. And so talk to me, let's unpack the marketing a bit more there, because I find it fascinating. Like, you know, we try and do a lot of it with Jimmy's Jobs, right? We're on different platforms and our sort of target uh, audience is kind of the, the sort of 25 to 35 majority of the time. Um, and, you know, so now we're, we're ending up actually doing quite a lot more on, on TikTok, which is not something I ever imagined, which people can find at Jimmy's Jobs if they're listening. But what, where do, and I mean, I know I'm in likely to get in trouble here with my parents for asking these ageist questions, but where where do the over 55s kind of hang out? And I know it's not not just those you're targeting, as you said at the beginning, but you are looking at a slightly different demographic to the, a lot of the people that come on the show. So I'm sure our listeners will be fascinated to hear. Yeah, you're quite right. And, you know, the over 50s, which is our target demographic, are, I think, the most misunderstood audience digitally. So, you know, they, they don't have the breakdown of personas on Facebook or on traditional channels. Um, they're a homogenous lump that suddenly you turn 50 and everybody assumes you're into money saving tips you know, searching for pension and funeral <laughs> plan advice, you know, um, and suddenly I've got a desire for comfortable footwear and giant slippers. And, you know, it, the, the facts of the matter is that isn't this group, you know, that, you know, what we associate with a 50 to 60 year old at the moment actually in people's head is what realistically is an 80 to 90 plus year old these days. Um, and so we are still learning where they hang out. We were told they were all on Facebook and they wouldn't be on Instagram and we were wasting our time. Um, and our evidence, you know, eight months into trading is that Instagram is our best performing channel for member acquisition mm. consumers. It's also our most engaged channel um, in terms of click-throughs and, and commentary and response back to activity. So, so we're already disproving, you know, the myth around, you know, older users of Instagram. And you're right, TikTok is beginning to come up, but not quite so quickly for our demographic. Um, and then what we're doing, again, is kind of, you know, following their behaviour. So understanding where do they hang out? You know, all of us in marketing, I think, would be relying quite heavily on Google Analytics as yeah. an indicator of the age of our audiences. And, and what we've learned is Google Analytics typically thinks our audience are younger than they really are. So because they work on mindset and activity and because over 50s these days are young of mind and so they are doing exactly the same things as 40s and 30 year olds um it looks like that you have a cohort of people in their perhaps early 40s but actually when you dig into the individual they're in their, their 50s so we're finding that google analytics is about 10 years out when you have mm. that younger mindset um and then you know our job over the course of the next three to five years is to you know, really, you know, stop scratching the surface and get under the skin of exactly where do this audience hang out? You know, what do they read? Do they like long form? Do they like short form? Do they like podcasts? Do they like video? Do they like static photography? You know, which websites do they like? Which brands do they like? And actually start to become the source of information and insight about Shifty's audience. And what other kind of misconceptions do you think there are about this age group? I mean, I was very taken by Eliza Philby's um, newsletter uh, in the last week, and she's been a guest on the show, Generational Historian, where the research shows that sixty by 2025, 60% of the nation's private wealth will be in female hands, basically um, through men passing away at an earlier age. And I just thought that is such an interesting, and it's 
it's almost obvious when you think about it and you just think about demographics and men dying earlier etc but i was just struck by that there there is so much with this kind of boomer generation that we sort of take for granted that we think we know but actually you're right that the sort of technology they are the most misunderstood generation when it comes to technology so i'd be fascinated by other misconceptions that you think are out there yeah, I went, well, the list is a long one. Um, to start with, <laughs> over 50s are not the boomer generation. So the boomers are now in their late 60s or 70s. Um, and so um, there's the, you know, there's an assumption that if you're over 50, you're a boomer and, and you're not. Um, there's an assumption that if you're in this age group, you're not digitally native. Therefore, you lack the ability to understand technology. Also absolute crap. Um, I, you know, you, you're either interested in tech or you're not. Um, and you can either learn or you can't, and that is not age-defined whatsoever. In the workplace, we see frightening stereotypes. So, so given, you know, within the next two years, one in every two workers in the UK is going to be aged over 50, and a child born today will on average live to 103. You know, so we need to be thinking that we will comfortably be working into our mid-70s and beyond. You know, yeah. I still hear on a daily basis heads of talent, heads of recruitment of very large brands tell me, you know, that they don't believe they can hire over 50s because they get sick more often, you know, or they're going to need rest breaks more than people if they've got like big footprints around the site. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't quite know who these people are picturing when I talk about, you know, workers in their 50s, 60s and 70s, but they are some of the fittest people, you know, yeah. you know they're running triathlons, they're healthy, you know, they, they are absolutely going at it. And statistically, a worker in their 50s is 200% less likely to take a day off work sick than a worker in their 20s. So wow. we, we hear these, you know, the other one is that they lack energy and pace. You know, again, you know, I mentioned our CTO. Well, he runs triathlons, he does off-piece skiing, he, he cycles to our office. He's in his late 60s. You know, he is not somebody that's struggling with motivation or energy or pace. Um, yet we make these stereotypes on a daily basis and often with reference to our grandparents who had 20 years less of lifespan than we do as this current generation. Of course, because the way you think about it, if people that are 50 that are going to work to 70 are in some ways only 60% of the way through their career, right? So there's exactly a huge talent pool there that the kind of countries missing out on there's also an attitudinal shift we talk to this demographic every day day in and day out and one of the words they hate the most is the word retirement they literally hate it 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 means to them it means stopping work it means pottering around in the garden or exclusively looking after grandchildren it means you know going into a, a slow decline into old age it's not something that they associate with themselves or their wants and desires in fact you know, people that talk to us talk about designing their own retirement. You know, how do they, you know, shift time so they work a bit less and have more time for the things that they're passionate about? They're often the sandwich generation. So if you're in your 50s, 70s, you often have elderly parents in their 90s and beyond that you're caring for, as well as adult children, as well as grandchildren, and sometimes great-grandchildren. You've got five generations that they're sandwiched in the middle of. And so they're saying to us what they want is just a blended life. They don't want to stop work. And the challenge is, because this is the very first generation that have the ability to enjoy this later life bonus, you know, these extra healthy years that their previous generation, their parents didn't get, 
nothing else has moved. So employment policy hasn't moved. Financial policies haven't moved to enable pensions to be more flexible to continue working and drawing a bit of a pension at the same time. You know, so there's a lot of work to do for us to encourage people to just remain economically active. And, and, and our mission, you know, as a business is that we add 10 economically productive years to life. Yeah. And I was struck by the language. You talk about this on your website, that phrases like pensions and retirement were developed in the um, post-World War II age and therefore haven't, you know, some of these concepts and, and language hasn't been updated in 80 years. Exactly that. You know, it, you know, it was a post-war construct when the average lifespan once entering into retirement was about three years. Um, you know, what happens now is we've added 30 healthy years to life expectancy over the last century, yet those dates haven't moved. And in fact, in some industries, if I look at kind of white collar professional services like banking and legal services, it's almost got earlier. It's become competitive and a mark of success to retire earlier as if it's some panacea of happiness in your 50s. And, and what we learn when we talk to these people is they thought that's what they wanted. You know, they retire from the career in, you know, I'm ex-Barclays, so they retire from Barclays after 30 years service or they stop lawyering at 60. They then have a great year doing up the house, having holidays, seeing their family and friends. But after 18 months or so, the boredom starts to creep in. And then the lack of purpose starts to eat away and they miss the social interaction. They miss the brain focus and but they still it's too late to come back and re-engage and get back into purposeful activity and that's where we're really bridging the gap and and we've got a number of brilliant employers actually that are working with us to create return ships from retirement you know you know from everything from accountants you know through to pensions consultants and, and everything in between and talk to us about the culture of building a company with this demographic in mind. Is it different to the companies you you built before, and and how has the pandemic sort of changed that building of culture? Well, interestingly, my profile of hiring is pretty identical. If you look at regardless of sector, actually, I've I've never been a massive fan of you only do what you've always done. Because um, I've never done that. Um, so I, I hire on five key traits, key personality traits. The first one is passion. And I like people that exhibit passion. And it's not necessarily passionate about work. It can be they're passionate about music or a hobby or something. But something that gets their fire going, um, I think, is a great trait. Secondly, they have to be customer obsessed. You know, I've talked about this. It's a big thing for me that the customer is always right in a business that I need. You know, we don't ever whinge or moan about anyone that's a customer because they are the ones that are paying our salaries, they're buying our products. They are the they are the sole people that we are serving. The third thing is that they've got drive. You know, I'm a high energy entrepreneur and I'm a bit pacey. So, you know, they've got to be able to kind of come with me and have the energy to do that. The fourth is that they're commercially savvy so that they, they're constantly, regardless of whether they're IT or finance or marketing or whatever their role is, they're always linking back to how does this commercially add sense for us as a business and how does this add sense and add value for our customers? And then the final thing is that they've got to like people. You know, unfortunately, you know, in this world, you meet a few people that just don't seem to like other people very much. And I find them quite hard to work with. So I quite like a merry band of people. And I think that you can teach a lot of the technical stuff um, and you can definitely, you know, I've got nobody I can hire in from an industry perspective because 
we were trailblazer in a brand new industry sector. So, you know, for me, having personality traits and, and the group of people that are kind of aligned along those points means that we can do great work together. If people want to find out more about you and the roles that you're hiring for, where's the best place to go? Yeah, so we, um, well, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, uh, it's probably the best place to see me from a professional perspective. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Um, we have a job board called Jobs Redefined, which we obviously advertise to our over 50 demographic. But that's not saying that we as a company only hire over 50s. We have a you know completely diverse workforce. Mm. So um, as and when we get roles, we do advertise them from our company page on LinkedIn, which is 55 Redefined. Um, but as always, you know, reach out through the website, reach out to me individually. We always love to hear from good people. Uh, well, look, I, the the image that you paint is very inspiring. Um, and whereabouts are you based? Everywhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we don't have a head office. We're a completely remote team of people. Um, so, you know, um, Aidan in our um, IT development team, he lives in in Wales. Um, you know, Alondra, who sorts out our job board, lives in Dunedin. You've got Gina, who heads up workforce in Bournemouth. You know, we're literally all over the place. Um, what we try to do is kind of dump down in London as a wider team every couple of months. Um, and then as small teams, as and when we need to, wherever is a convenient location to everybody in those individual teams. Um, but we have no plans to have a head office and a physical site. So it is always a case of we meet when it's useful to meet. But otherwise, we, we're constantly online with each other um, as we go through our day by video or or chat. And those sessions that you have in in London, I think you just described them as a, as a dump. Um, but like, how how <laughs> how do you sort of manage uh, them? Because I think this is true. You know, a lot of the focus, kind of in the press at the moment, is sort of focused on you know two day, three days in the office, etc. And I think there's a huge thing which is being missed at the moment in the commentary, uh, which is about startups actually getting together once every um, couple of months, just as you guys are. I, I think that is going to that's potentially a story that's really being underlooked at the moment. But how do you make sure those sessions are as efficient as possible in terms of driving things forward? Because we were born in a pandemic, you know, we, we launched, you know, when we had no other option, you know, so my CTA, who I talked about in those early hires, it was six months before I met anybody in person. Um, because we weren't allowed to get leave our houses or meet anyone in person. So we've proved that we can run and grow a business remotely. So there are only two reasons why we get together as a group. The one is to get a bit of social interaction. So we always make sure we're tagging on a lunch or drinks or something which just helps us get to know each other as a team a little bit better and and have the things that are just a bit weird to do via a video call, um, you know, getting to know people's kind of personal lives. But then the second thing is we never have a normal business as usual agenda. So when we get together, it is to brainstorm and to creatively solve some of the bigger challenges we have. So an example of one of our big challenges that we have is how do you describe the life stage 50 to 70? When people don't want to be described in terms of their age, you have a couple of terms that are in the ecosystem like midlife, for example, but our our research tells us that women like midlife, but men hate the word midlife because they follow it up with crosses straight after <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> so it's not something that, you know, it resonates to the Davina McCall crowd of women, but it doesn't resonate at all to a male audience. You know, it's not late to life, you know. So how do you, you know, create a new word 
for this stage of life, you know, and these are so, so these are the things that we get together about, you know, how do we, how do we, you know, create that, that moment of excitement for customers, you know, that they weren't expecting, you know, how do we design a new product to some of the challenges that we've been asked for to, to, you know, from some of our corporate customers. So all of those sessions are creative. They're never more than half a day because I don't think you can be creative for more than half a day without burning your brain out. And they always are then followed on, you know, or interacting with some kind of social session. And so for that, it feels great. You know, you're not trying to just meet for the sake of meeting or do anything that you couldn't do via a video or remote call. Um, and, it, it, you know, for us, that really works. What doesn't really work, you know, talking about your point, Jimmy, about, you know, supporting that, it's just incredibly expensive um, as a business to meet in London, you know, say to hire a room for half a day, you're looking at £500. And, yeah. You know, so for startups, you know, it's really challenging to do that in a cost-effective way where you don't need serviced offices and you don't need, you know, full-time space, but you just want a really nice place to meet every now and again that's a bit more cost-effectively. I haven't found that, so if anyone listening knows where that place is in London, please point it in my direction. Um, I'll tell you what we do, like, that works quite well for the Jimmy's Jobs team is actually we go to pubs that open late morning um and try and find corners and there are lots of pubs dotted around south london now where we know that are going to be a bit quieter and so on so I'm, I'll, I'll send you some of them they're probably not and just get your sort of... sharp elbows out and just kind of go we own this corner exactly but pubs <laughs> yeah they're generally people don't sort of come in them much in the week till sort of you know later on in the day and like you say by then anyway everyone's brain is fried with the kind of creativity <laughs> side of it um then occasionally you may partake in a drink although Having just had our second kid a, a few weeks ago, we've, we've not been doing much of that, to be honest. But um, um, yeah, but I, I agree. I do think there's there's the sort of like what, yeah, what will the sort of yeah the modern office, modern co working space look like? Yeah, no one's really sort of cracked it that well yet. I mean, there's interesting stuff happening. We will be getting people on this series to talk about it a, a bit, but I don't think anyone has has really cracked it. Um, no. I just wanted to run into our final few questions. So this one is a bit kind of counterintuitive to what you're um, building, but we've asked a number of people that come on the show. If you were 22 in 2022, where would you be looking to kind of build and, and start your career? And is that about me advising someone now 22? Or is that about me personally, if I was 22? Oh, let's go with the latter. Okay. Well, for me, I've always having to choose between what do I enjoy the most? You know, what's my passion? And actually, how do then I combine that with a growth segment? So, um, you know, so for me, my passion, so outside of work, my passion's interior design. Okay. So, you know, that was really what I spend my weekends and spare time kind of looking at and reading content. But I learned quite early on that actually, that's not necessarily a massive growth sector. It's not an easy sector to kind of earn money through or build businesses in. And so for me, I've always gone for, as I say, where there's an underserved customer and thus therefore not the opportunity to build something brand new, but just to build something that's better than everything that's out there. And I capture these things all the time. I keep, a, in fact, I annoy everybody. I keep a little book of running list of industries that are ultimately terribly run um that need a shake up to be the next business the next business the next business after that so i could tell you what my next three industries are to shake up if you like <laughs> yeah go on so, tell us those. I, I might i might offend a few people um, in, on this call so the first is funerals so yeah. you know 
with a pandemic, unfortunately, comes bereavement, and we experience that and have an appalling and, quite frankly, you know, 30 years out of date experience of how to organise a funeral these days. Um, secondly, is industrial waste and refuse. So having a bar and restaurant means that we burn through waste operators that seem absolutely incapable of picking up waste on a certain day um, and not leaving you hanging dry for two to three weeks. Um, and, you know, so those two there. Uh, and then the, the, the third one, is is really, I suppose, not so much an underserved customer, but an opportunity is what I see around the kind of the NFT space, the metaverse space, where you've got such an emerging industry that customers don't really understand. So there's an opportunity to getting there quite early doors and, and do something exciting. Oh, well, I was just about to accuse you of sort of saying no, what, no one can accuse you of jumping into sexy sectors by talking <laughs> about funerals and industrial refuge. But you, you there's money in Mark, apparently. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you did swerve then talking about NFTs. So I will, um, which I, I agree with. I think it's a fascinating kind of sector and maybe slightly overhyped some of it, but uh, there's, there's a lot of interesting work happening there. Um, and so what's the best piece of kind of content or book that you you've read lately that's particularly stuck with you well there's i know you asked me for one but there's actually three um, <laughs> go on um, one one's a tv program one's a book one's a newsletter um and three have been massively influential to me over my lifestyle um the, the first one as a tv show is decades old i watched it when i was a teenager um, and it was called troubleshooter with sir john harvey jones and it is without doubt the single most turning point that made me decide to be an entrepreneur, to go into business. And, you know, I thank my business studies teacher at the age of 14 for showing it to me. And even then it was probably from 10, 20 years earlier. Um, but that was hugely influential. And any kind of these business programs like Dragon's Den today that can mm. help encourage young people into the world of business, I think is great. Where can you get where can you get that from? Is it on YouTube or something? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, there's some of the brands that, you know, I remember there was an episode about Capella Apple Juice, um, who are still obviously trading and thriving right now. But back then, they were almost close to going bust. And counterintuitively, his advice was to increase the selling price by about 400% and put it in a better bottle, not change the product at all. And it then started to fly off the shelves. And it was just one of the biggest lessons in business that it's not always the obvious things that you think of that are going wrong it's sometimes just some of the wrappers around the edges and you know that that was just so influential but no I'd have to google it now but but massive massive influence I was just thinking I'd heard that story before I was talking to Matt Moulding at the Hook Group the other day and he was telling me exactly he saw that story as well and it inspired him which I thought was was fascinating as as well oh go on then and what are, what are the other two go pieces on there, the other two, right well well book is called scaling up by burn harnish um it's not appropriate for where i am right now as a startup um there are better support things like the lean startup but scaling up is definitely i almost used it as a manual in my businesses once you get to kind of over a million two million turnover it is brilliant at bringing you back to how to multiply scale you know with consistency who was the author again? Vern Harnish. Vern Harnish. Okay. Yeah, so brilliant book. Um, and then um, I get a newsletter called Lenny's Newsletter um, from Lenny Ratchiski, um, which is just, again, about the tech environment. It's around how to get customers. It's around marketing. But it's just a brilliant piece of advice. So, again, 
happily reach out to me if you'd like me to send the link to that. Yeah, we'll put the links to those in the, in the show notes. I agree, Lenny's newsletter is fantastic. Um, Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on. That's been such a brilliant episode of Jimmy's Jobs. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. All the best. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways that we make this show possible is by the partners that we have that support us. They can be like today's, like the Octopus Group or the Fintech Alliance, but also we've done more consumer-facing brands like Primary Bid and Beer 52. You can go to our website and check out more details at www.jobsofthefuture.co. The other way the show is made possible is by me going into organisations and talking about jobs of the future and the talent that is required to fill those jobs, how you retain them, how you attract them and how great teams are built that can achieve superb things that we hear about on this show. If you want to know more on that, drop us a line at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. We always love hearing from our listeners. (music) 